Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. Alright, so today the book of Chronicles. Now, much like the books of Samuel and Kings that we took a look at last week, First and Second Chronicles are actually one work, the book of Chronicles. The book was divided when the Septuagint was created, and once again, the Septuagint was the Greek language translation of the Hebrew scriptures. The division of the book was most likely due to the fact that Chronicles was too big to put on one scroll at the time. So with all that in mind, we're going to cover what's First and Second Chronicles in our Bibles as a single book in today's class. Now, another thing that's interesting is that in our English Bibles, the book of Chronicles comes after the books we covered last week, the books of Samuel and Kings. And the Septuagint orders the books this way, too, and this is understandable, right? A lot of the content in Samuel and Kings is repeated in the book of Chronicles, and Chronicles just takes us a little bit further, so why not have it right after these books? But that said, in the Hebrew canon, Chronicles is not after Samuel and Kings. In fact, it is way later. It is the last book of the Hebrew scriptures. And this positioning highlights the fact that though it covers many of the same details in those other books, Chronicles has a very different purpose. So, why if we have a lot of these stories in Samuel and Kings, why the book of Chronicles? What are the differences between these similar history-like books? Well, if you remember in the last couple of weeks, we've been covering the former prophets. The uh, Torah with the, was the first five books of the Bible. The former prophets were the next four. And that is Joshua all the way through 2 Kings. That's Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. And in those books, the audience in view is most likely an exiled Jewish community in Babylon. In Chronicles, the audience in view is probably a 4th century post-exilic Jewish audience. A Jewish audience that's not in Babylon in exile, but is back in Judah. Only while they're back in the land of promise, so back in Judah, they're not their own masters there. Now they are ruled by the Persians in what's known as the province of Yehud. So the difference between Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles is that these books were written at a different time and place, and uh, the concerns of the audience and the writers is different. Now, uh, as Doug mentioned last week in his presentation of Samuel and Kings, he said 
that Samuel Kings spotlights, or particularly Kings, spotlights the northern kingdom of Israel, while Chronicles spotlights the Davidic dynasty in Judah. And he's right. Uh, Chronicles barely mentions King Saul and the northern of kingdom of Israel at all. Uh, and again, that's most of what we heard about in depth, anyway, last week. But the chronicler, living in the post-exilic, pluralistic Persian Empire, this author is concerned about preserving Jewish or Judahite identity. Um, a little bit different than the concern of the uh, author of Samuel and Kings, who is in exile trying to figure out, well, what the heck do we do now? Uh, the chronicler wants to preserve this Jewish identity in the midst of a pluralistic environment. And the way he does that is he focuses uh, or defines this identity as centering around proper worship of Adonai. And the proper worship of Adonai is centered at the temple in Jerusalem, and it's administered by the Levitical priesthood. So the temple, Jerusalem, Levitical priesthood. And if you remember from last week in the book of Kings, none of that was happening in the northern kingdom of Israel. For Jerusalem is in Judah, the temple's in Judah, and they essentially, as presented in Kings, and that's why Elijah and Elisha came to them, they had apostatized. So, moving on to the structure of Chronicles itself, it it really has three main parts. The first being a genealogical prologue, the second being the reigns of David and Solomon, and the third, uh, the part that discusses the Davidic monarchy after the death of Solomon. So I'm going to say that one more time. There are three main parts to the book of Chronicles, and the first is the genealogical prologue, that's nine whopping chapters. The second which is the most significant theological portion of the book, cover the ideal reigns of David and Solomon. And the third section, third and final section, discusses the Davidic monarchy after the death of Solomon. So we covered this a little, but I want to flush it out a little bit more. When you compare Chronicles to Samuel and Kings, you realize these works have very different contexts. Samuel and Kings sought to answer the pressing questions of exiles who'd experienced the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the end of Davidic rule, and deportation to Babylon. A complete falling out. A complete heartbreak. The bomb had gone off. Chronicles, on the other hand, addresses the post-exilic community that following the Persian defeat of the Babylonians had returned from Babylon to live under Persian rule and worship in the rebuilt Jerusalem temple. So Samuel and Kings address the question, why did this happen to us? While Chronicles is addressing questions like, who are we? Are we still the people of God? And what do we make of God's promises to David and Solomon. What do they mean for us today? And so the author of Chronicles has reshaped 
the stories of David and Solomon and the kings following Solomon's death in order to provide a message of hope for the future, for those back in the land of promise. So I'm going to say that one more time. The author of Chronicles has reshaped the stories that we read about last week in order to provide a message of hope for those who've returned from exile. So let's dive right in. Again, the book of Chronicles begins with nine chapters of genealogy. The author here is summarizing the whole storyline of sacred history, naming all the key characters from Adam to those who resettled in Judah after the exile. His genealogy, though, is it's not random. It doesn't cover everyone. It has an explicit purpose. The genealogy highlights two key lineages. One being the tribe of Judah, and he traces Judah all the way to David and Solomon, and then from David and Solomon all the way to those in that line in his own day. The other family line that receives a lot of attention is that of Aaron. And if you're a member back in the Pentateuch or the Torah, Aaron is Moses' brother, the first Levitical high priest. This line traces his descendants, the Levitical priests, all the way up to the contemporary period of the Second Temple. And so right from the start, right from this genealogy, you see how the Chronicles, Chronicles two main themes, uh, they're, they're, they're put at the very beginning and they're fleshed out for the rest of the book. The author's two main themes are his hope for a future king from David's line who will be just like him and the hope for proper worship that will be administered by the Levitical priests at the new temple. Now, after chapter 9, or starting with chapter 9, from after the genealogy, the author moves into the stories about David, the second part of the book, the second part of the book that covers the reigns of David and Solomon. But first we look at David. Now, a lot of these stories that we will read about in this book are very familiar and they're essentially just kind of redone from the book of Samuel. But again, there are a number of stories that are presented very differently. There are a lot of key differences. So what are these differences? Well, at first, well, first of all, the author, he leaves out all of the negative stories about David. Anytime David is presented as weak or immoral in Samuel, that's completely omitted here in Chronicles. So there's no Saul chasing David around in the desert, persecuting him, and there's no David dying weak and frail and with a need for a young woman to keep him warm at the end of his life. And that's omitted because David is presented as very strong in this book. Now, when we're talking about morality, the story of David concerning his adultery with Bathsheba and the murdering of her husband, that too is omitted. Because that presented David as a sinner, a real screw-up. 
So again, anytime we heard about David being weak or a real darn sinner in Samuel, those stories are completely omitted in this book. And what's left are the stories that portray David as an ideal, good, and strong king. There's also additional material about David that you won't find in the book of Samuel. And all the material, the additional material we find in the book of Chronicles, all that shows David in a very positive light. So while in Kings, Solomon is presented as making plans for the temple, in Chronicles, God gives those plans to David. And this is, the purpose of this for the Chronicle is to present David as a Moses-like figure. So just as God gave Moses plans for building the tabernacle, so too he gave David plans for building the temple. And this is interesting, right? Because in Samuel and Kings, it's Solomon who does all of this with the temple. David may have the desire may have had the desire to build a temple, but he does nothing to contribute toward it. So we have to ask ourselves, why all this new material about David that seems to be rub against what we read about in Samuel and Kings. The author of Chronicles is highlighting that aspect that we read about in Samuel about David, of of David as a man after God's own heart. Um, While Samuel gave us a complicated portrayal of David, someone who is great, but at the same time weak, and at the same time very much a sinner, um, in Chronicles... David is merely presented as an ideal king. And the reason the chronicler seems to be doing this is because he wants David, again, who's presented in Samuel as a man for God's own heart, he wants to focus on that part of David because he wants David to be seen as as the ideal king or an image or type of king whom he's hoping for, to come from David's line in the near future. And again, lest we think this like completely out of thin air, we'll see this again in the prophets. In Ezekiel and Jeremiah, uh, we'll see the future coming Messiah envisioned as a new David. Again, they're putting a whole lot of stock in David as a man after God's own heart. And not that these faults of David aren't readily available. The book of Samuel is readily available, we think. Um, But the chronicler is focusing on those parts of David where he really is the king that we need. So, when David dies, the chronicler presents the transition of power to Solomon as seamless and peaceful. And if you remember anything at all from the book of Kings, the transition of power from David to Solomon was anything but peaceful. But in this book, all of what's unified Israel, it stands behind Solomon. It stands behind not only Solomon, but it stands behind the temple, its construction, and the Levitical priests. So just like in the story of David, The chronicler's presentation of the reign of Solomon is an idealized reign. 
This is how we want to be in our own day. And the strong critique, again, uh, there were no critiques of David in this book, but same for Solomon. The strong critique we found in the book of Kings about Solomon becoming an adulterer, or not an adulterer, an idolater in his old age, that's completely omitted in this book. Instead, once again, uh, he's an ideal king, and he's the emphasis is on his contribution to the building of the temple and ongoing temple worship. And that's true of both David and Solomon. A lot of the stories that we find in Samuel and Kings are left out, and the f- stories we focus in on are what they did to bring about the temple and proper temple worship. So we asked this question about David. We've got to ask it about Solomon. Why this new presentation of Solomon? And again, it's to present yet another type whom future kings are to emulate. For during his and David's reigns, Israel or Judah and Israel are unified. Their center of worship is at Jerusalem, at the temple, and under the Levitical priesthood. And all of this is so important to the chronicler and to the post-exilic people of God uh, that really, again, it's presented as a type for what they need to be. So from Solomon, when Solomon dies, we move on into the third section of the book. And that section, once again, is the story of the Davidic monarchy. Now, again, this section focuses almost exclusively on the southern monarchy. So the focus is on Judah and not so much Israel, like in the book of Kings. And the division of the kingdom in Chronicles is understood as devastating. Again, his focus is on all Israel united around the temple with proper worship. So naturally, the chronicler focuses, in in the midst of this uh, disruption, he focuses in on the orthodox southern kingdom and not the apostate northern kingdom. Again, that said, I don't want to make too much of that because some people talk about chronicles as if it's all about Judah, but chronicles really wants all of Israel to be united all of Israel, all 12 tribes, all 12 post-exilic tribes reunited. Uh, And in various parts of this third section of the book, we find that members of the northern tribes, they come down to Judah and are present at different festivals and, 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 and renewals of the covenant. And again, his focus is on not just Judah, but on all of Israel together. Only Orthodox Israel tends to be more in Judah. So this third and final section of the Davidic monarchy, uh, after Solomon, is all about these four reformer kings. We hear about a whole lot of kings, but there's a disproportionate amount of time focusing in on Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah. And he focuses in on these four kings because they reformed the worship 
of Adonai when syncretism and apostasy were rampant. These, again, are four kings whom he wants future kings to be like. And he would like it if the future kings were most like King Hezekiah. And this King Hezekiah figure is presented as a new David and Solomon. Hezekiah is a king who embodies the chronicler's main concerns, one who restores the vision of all Israel, reunited under a Davidic king, and worshiping at the Jerusalem temple. Now, I'm not going to focus too much on the rest of the kings, all that to say that we find that in the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles, Chronicles, the different kings are given kind of like a rating, like, oh, this is a good king, this is a bad king. But what's interesting is the book of Chronicles, or the chronicler, he gives the same kings at times a different rating than the author of the book of Kings does. And this is most apparent in King Manasseh. Now, if you remember from the book of Kings, King Manasseh is one of those awful kings. He's given an F minus. He's one of the worst. The chronicler, he does. He lists Manasseh's faults. But at the end of the day, Manasseh is presented as a good king. And he's presented as a good king because at the near the end of his life, Manasseh repents. And as we'll see as the lecture proceeds, repentance is one of those major themes found in this book that the chronicler is all about. He's essentially telling the people of his own day, you may have had a rough past, you may have done some terrible things, you may not have obeyed the Torah, but if you repent, you may yet still receive blessings. Now, after focusing primarily on these reformer kings and giving other kings a letter grade, the last part of the book quickly presents the very last few kings who didn't follow the Torah at all. Um, it's, a f- it's presented as a few sentences. The author doesn't spend much time on it. But he goes over these the last few kings to show that Israel is now rampantly worshiping idols And what this does is it leads them to exile. So exile in Chronicles, like in the book of Kings, is presented as a mess of the people of God's own making. So this whole final section becomes a series, this whole final part of the book, becomes a series of character studies where the author wants later generations of Israel to learn from their family history. Future kings are to be like the reformer kings, and all lay Israelites are to be faithful to their God and to the Torah so as not to experience exile yet again. Now remember, at the very end of the book of Kings, we're presented with... I guess like an ounce of hope, you might say, uh, for the last king of Judah, King Jehoiakim. Uh, He's released from prison in Babylon and given a seat of honor at the Babylonian kingdom's court. And that's how the book ends. But in the book of Chronicles, the story goes a bit further and it ends on a real note of hope. For in the very last sentence of the book, we are told that 
Babylon has fallen. That the king of Persia has defeated them. And not just that, but that the Persian king Cyrus is led by Adonai to proclaim that the people of God, the people of Judah, the people we've been following all this time, they get to go back home and rebuild Jerusalem along with their temple. So despite the fact that the worst possible bomb has gone off, they've been exiled, they've been out of the land, they've been seemingly forsaken by God, by the book's end, God does not quit them and brings them back into the land. So, to conclude our look at the book of Chronicles, we have to ask ourselves, and we're going to kind of rehash what we just talked about in a summary form. What is the author of Chronicles trying to get across? Well, we saw that Chronicles begins its story by tracing Israel's ancestors from Adam all the way to the people of God who made their way back to Judah after this Persian king Cyrus announced an end to their time of exile. And in that opening genealogical section, the original unity of the people of God is presented. And also in that genealogical section, we see that everything that David establishes enjoys divine approval. Now, of the three main parts of the book that we've talked about, the second long section focusing on the reigns of David and Solomon is fundamental for understanding the chronicler's theological position. In this section, two divine promises are given. The first of these, in the first of these, God promises David that his throne will be established forever through his descendants. Again, that's the Davidic covenant that we heard about last week. And in the second, God promises Solomon that all who humble themselves, who seek God's face, who repent, will be forgiven. So by these twin principles of king and worship, the third and final section evaluates all of the subsequent kings of the Davidic monarchy. And again, Hezekiah, in particular, is presented as a new David, a new Solomon, who restores that vision of all Israel, reunited under Davidic king, and worshiping at the Jerusalem temple following the collapse of Israel, or the northern kingdom. So within that narrative framework, three theological themes are especially important. We're going to look at these themes and then be done called today. So the first theological theme that's important in Chronicles is the, is the temple. The temple dominates these pages as the primary symbol of God's present with Israel. The chronicler's presentation of the reigns of David and Solomon consists essentially of David's preparation for and Solomon's construction of the temple. And in that third section, every subsequent king is evaluated regarding their faithful preservation of proper worship in the temple. The Chronicles' concern for identity and con continuity, first seen in the genealogies that linked the post-exilic community with their roots, 
is intimately tied to the temple. The central presence of the Levites within these genealogies also suggests that worship properly led by them and carried out in the Jerusalem temple provides the means by which the community connects with the traditions of the past. So again, that's all to say that one of the main theological themes is the temple and proper worship. The second theological theme of the chronicler is the notion of all Israel. So while the focus in Chronicles is primarily on the southern kingdom of Judah after the death of Solomon, nevertheless, throughout the rest of the book, the author talks about all Israel quite a bit. All 12 tribes are in view. There's no notion of the 10 lost tribes of Israel here. All 12 tribes are in view by the chronicler. And the author sees the division of the kingdom into north and south as a tragic severing of God's people. He wants all of Israel to be together in his own day. And so when we read this book, we realize despite the division, his hope is that all will be gathered. Uh, And to that end, in the book, there are frequent calls for all the people of God to return to come and worship in Israel, or in Jerusalem. And finally, a third and final theological theme that I didn't too much touch on too much in my presentation of this book is what's known as the principle of immediate retribution. Now, this is the view that obedience leads to blessing and disobedience leads to judgment. And not just like way in the future, but in someone's own lifetime. So we, we see this notion first expressed in First Chronicles 28.9, which reads this way. If you seek God, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will abandon you forever. Now this blessing judgment um, is presented as being immediate. It's presented as occurring within an individual king's own lifetime. Now, that said, the reason why I didn't focus too much on this and why this may appear a little bit out of a clear blue sky is that many scholars recently have said that this theological theme of immediate retribution is a little bit overstated. It's not actually as mechanical as this sounds in the book itself, in the stories as they're presented. What people have come to realize, and kind of what I did focus on in this book, is that the chronicler is actually more concerned about repentance and restoration than retribution. The chronicler obviously believes in the judgment of God as a real thing, but as we see Again, in that one example of King Manasseh, King Manasseh is just as bad as he is in the book of Kings, but because he repented, everything changes. Judgment washes over him, and he is blessed. And by the end of the book, Manasseh, despite everything, is presented as a pretty decent king. So again... More than immediate retribution, the theme, the third theme of Chronicles is repentance and restoration. So, you might be asking yourself, why is the book of Chronicles important to us today? 
why do we need this book when we've already have Samuel and Kings? Well, I think this book is actually fairly relevant, particularly relevant to you and me today, because this book, as I mentioned earlier, seems to have been written to a pluralistic environment or pluralistic Persia. Again, the people of God are not masters of their own domain. And you and I are, we have been for some time, but increasingly so, worshiping this same Lord in pluralistic America. So when we read this book and its stories about ideal kings and proper worship, we come to see that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, wants us to worship him aright. Jesus is that Davidic king whom the chronicler was looking for. And you and I, who are members of what we might say post-Christian America, are seeking to worship our Lord and Savior aright and to avoid the syncretism that so easily entangles. So that's the Book of Chronicles. Next week, we'll take a look at Ezra and Nehemiah. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal St. G Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live, or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week, with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you, and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.